on the next lesson, which is a snapshot of the church at the year 100, as well as um, the Apostolic Fathers. And if you don't know what that means, the Apostolic Fathers, um, you will um, by the end of this. And so, with that said, let me uh, jump right into the introduction. Well, first, uh, just want to say hi to the camera. So, we're continuing uh, pretty much where we left off last time. So, last time we covered the apostolic era. So, kind of to give you where we're at, I dealt with an introduction to history and church history. And then um, I moved into the intertestamental period to fill the gap between the Old and New Testament. Then we did the ministry of Christ. Then we did the era of the apostles, pretty much going from the day the church was born until the last apostle died. So we're kind of hitting the pause button there. And so this introduction slide, more or less what it's saying is that this is a snapshot. Like if you were to take a picture of the church in the year 100, not long after John the apostle died, what does it look like? And the reason why it's helpful to take snapshots at times is a snapshot will show you change. And you might be thinking, how in the world does a snapshot show you change? Doesn't it show you, doesn't it freeze a moment of time? Yes, but when you compare two snapshots from two different times, you're instantly able to see the change, right? So the way that I've been doing the course so far is we've been seeing the church in motion. I mean, you know, we went from the apostles and the birth of the church all the way to pretty much where, we, where you would be at the year 100. That's motion. Now we're taking a still shot of it, and then we'll take another still shot in the year 325, okay? And so you'll have 225 years between these two pictures, if you will, and you'll be able to see change, okay? Um, so to, to kind of help you understand what I'm talking about, about snapshots showing change, need I say any more than this? That's me when I was 18, and then that's me this year. What the heck happened to me besides me going bald like Albert showed? I mean, that man's old. One of his eyeballs is higher than the other. I just don't know what happened there other than time. Now, in my mind, I feel just as spry. In fact, the bald version of me could totally whoop that guy in a fight. But the point is, the point is, um, I might feel the same. But looking at those pictures shows me a lot has happened in the last 26 years, okay? And all of us could do that. You could find your senior year picture. That was taken during my senior year. You could take a picture of yourself now, and you could compare them, and you could see your change. And so that's what I'm going to be doing with the year 100 and the year 325. That's how you'll see how much changes in that amount of time, okay? Now, as we're focusing on the year 100, just I always try to give you my sources. The sources for this information is the Bible. Okay, so this is one you could discern on your own simply by reading the Bible and asking certain questions about what the New Testament shows us. Um, and, then, uh, and then when we're done with that, okay, when we're done with that snap snapshot, I want to move into the Apostolic Fathers. And you might not have any idea who they are, but again, my point is to, to help you with that. So with that said, Let's move straight into the snapshot. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to take the year 100 and we're going to ask the question of what was the church called? If you were to grab a Christian then and say, what was the church called? The church was called the church, the ecclesia. You might say, well, that's kind of obvious. Good, right? You read the New Testament, that's what it's called, the church. Now, the word ecclesia or church appears 114 times 
in the New Testament. Um, and there's two broad uses of this word ecclesia. Use number one is the secular use, which just means like a senate or an assembly that runs a city, that governs it. Okay, the second use is the religious use, which is the use that, that we're interested in, which is church. Now, in the New Testament, um, 109 times it's used of the church, okay? But what that means is five times it's actually used in a Greek political sense, um, where there's like assemblies, such as in Athens or whatever, making decisions. But really, the, the Bible's main usage of this refers to the church, the ecclesia. The word means those who are called out, the called out ones, those called out by God, where his assembly, where his chosen one. And it's a New Testament gloss for the Old Testament word kahal, which means the people of God, the community of God, those who are in covenant with God. So 109 of the uses usages in the New Testament deal with us. Of those 109, there's two ways you could understand it. It either is talking about the local ecclesia, meaning the local church, like Sovereign Way Christian Church, or the church. You get what I'm saying? So you got the church and then you got churches, okay? And when we're talking about churches, that's 95 of the 109 times, meaning the New Testament's focus is predominantly on the local church and matters in the local church and the believer's life in the local church, okay? But there are a couple times, for sure, where you do have a discussion of the church in general. In Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus says, I will build my church, he's not talking about sovereign way. He's talking about the church. We happen to be part of that, but that's what Jesus will build. Or in Ephesians chapter 5, the church is the bride of Christ. Not the local church, but the church as a whole is the bride of Christ. Okay? Now, one thing worth bringing up is the names uh, that you see today, like Roman Catholic Church, that's what RCC means, or Eastern Orthodox, or Lutheran, or Baptist, they're not in the Bible, okay? They're not in the Bible. You're not going to find them. Now, you will find descriptors in the Bible, like Church of God, or Church of Christ, or Christian Church, but they're not titles. They are never used in the Bible as titles. They're used as descriptors. Of course, this is the ecclesia of God. Of course, it's the, the community of Christ, you know, that, that, that goes without saying, but it's not used as titles. And the reason I bring that up is you do have certain churches like the Church of Christ and any restoration movement church, they will say that if your church is not called the Church of Christ, then it is not the true church. And I've heard it from enough people because I spent my first eight years in that denomination to where that is the common accent. <laughs> Sorry. But, but, but not only that, um, you know, it, it's just what a lot of them believe. And it simply is not true. They will go to Romans 16, where Paul greets all the churches of Christ. It's a descriptor. It's not a title. And they have a very hyper-literalistic wooden reading um, where they will say that you have to be called this. You can't use words that aren't in the Bible, but then in their sermons, they use words that aren't in the Bible. It's just a, a lot of inconsistency, um, to, to say the least, right? And so, you know, you have to be, you have to be careful um, and, and be alert of how people are going to misuse Scripture. Just because Baptist and Lutheran and all that is not in the Bible doesn't mean they're not legitimate terms. The reason why these terms are helpful today is because you have a lot of different denominations 
But these denominations in and of themselves aren't bad. They just have major disagreements on like, you know, um, who could take the Lord's Supper in your church, you know, um, things like that. And, and the disagreements are sharp enough to where you can't do local church together. You just can't. There'd always be fighting. We could both proclaim the same gospel. We could evangelize together. We could even support world missions together. But you can't do local church together because of these disagreements. And so Baptists, because we're Baptists, um, what that means is, is very clear. We believe that the Bible teaches there's a separation of church and state. We believe baptism is full immersion. We believe it's only for believers. Um, you know, it's not for babies. It's not for people who don't believe. Um, we believe the Bible's the, the final authority. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Steve, that's just biblical. Yes, I agree. But the Presbyterians are going to say the same thing about them. They think their infant baptism is biblical. They think they can make a biblical argument for it. We're not going to say they're not saved. They're not going to say we're not saved because we believe in the same Christ. We believe in the same gospel. But this disagreement makes it to where um, we can't do local church together because we would say that each local church is autonomous from every other local church. They would say, no, the local church belongs to the, the synod. Um, so again, who becomes a pastor? Who makes decisions that affect the local church? Who could take communion? Who gets baptized? Between Presbyterians and Baptists, we answer those differently. So it makes no sense for us to be in the same building where we're going to bicker. They could have theirs. We could have ours. And these, these terms are useful. In the first century, the church was so new that it wasn't going to happen. But the church has been here 2,000 years. And so these words definitely can be helpful. Now, the point that I want to make at the end of this slide is the Bible gives no official title to the church. There's no official title, but it does give these descriptors. Some of them are better than others, or I'd say not better like anything the Bible says is good. But what I'm saying is you can't go wrong with like body of Christ or the way, okay? The way, the bride, the body, the church, you know, believers, disciples, Whatever you want to call us, those are things that the, the, the words that the scripture uses. There's a reason why we named this church Sovereign Way Christian Church. It has always been impressed upon me in the book of Acts that the first title or name they seem to call themselves by was the way. And it makes sense. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Okay, so I always wanted, if I was going to plant a church, I always wanted to name it the way. But then I found out there's a whole bunch of hyper-charismatic churches out there where they flop around on the ground like fish and hop around like frogs that call themselves the way. And I knew if we called ourselves the way, that's what people would um, assume. So my thought was, and, and it, there was a group of us working on this together, we want to communicate that we are part of that original church. We're the way. It's got to be in our name. But we also want people to know we believe in the doctrines of grace, that we're reformed in our soteriology, hence the word sovereign. Okay? We wanted to make it clear that we're Christian. This is, we're, we're not some sort of like universal, ecumenical, nonsensical um, body of believers. No, we're Christian. And then, of course, the right word was church. There was debate. Somebody's like, why not community? Why not fellowship? And my, I was very firm on this. I'm like, because ecclesia is bigger than all of that. Fellowship is one part of ecclesia. Um, community is one part of ecclesia. But we are the called out ones that are in fellowship, that are the community. Hence, we ended up with Sovereign Way Christian Church. Um, but again, the reason why way is in there is we wanted to give homage 
to the first name of the church that you really see in the Bible. And it's kind of funny. When one of our pastors a long time ago went to a Nine Marks Weekender, um, the, Mark Dever <laughs> looked us up and then looked up our name, and he said, there is no other church anywhere in the world with the name Sovereign Way Christian Church. He's like, does that trouble you? <laughs> and it's like, no, why would it? It just means, hey, we've got something, uh, I think we've got something good going here. But anyhow, moving on. So that is the first question, 100 AD, what was the church called the church, okay? The second question is who can be part of the church, okay? Church membership, right? And so in the year 100, there were three relationships necessary in your life for you to be considered part of the church, okay? First and foremost was your relationship to Christ. As your Lord, he, or he must be your Lord because he is the Lord. And so there's this inner relationship that you have to believe in Christ. You have to submit to him. He has to be your Messiah. God has to be your God. And then you're adopted as sons to the Father. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 covers some of that. Now, of course, when you believe, it doesn't mean this is instantly visible. Okay? It's not like, oh, I believe on Christ and now I have a cross burning on my chest and back that everyone could see. No, it's kind of an invisible thing because it's between you and God. The only visible aspect of it is your baptism. Okay, that was a visible act where you were you were immersed, buried with them in baptism, and raised. And, and so, in a sense, that's a, a visible picture that I belong to Jesus. I have this relationship with him. Um, but you're not going to see it externally beyond that. And if you weren't there at my baptism... You didn't see my baptism, so the way you're going to know I'm a Christian is externally by my works. That's why James says uh, faith without works is dead. Now, the second relationship is with other believers. This is a key one. Okay, there is no such thing biblically as the Lone Ranger Christian. There is a clear responsibility to meet together and fellowship and build each other up. There's over 42 one another commands or imperatives in the New Testament. You cannot fulfill those in isolation. You cannot submit to local church leaders if you're not part of a local church. You can't be equipped by local church leaders, Ephesians chapter 4, you know, verse 11. You can't be equipped by local church leaders if you're not part of the local church. You can't serve and build each other up. You can't stir one another up to good works. This is basic Christianity. And yet you'd be surprised how many people who think they know the word of God will argue against it. I don't need the local church. I don't need to be under the authority of pastors. And yet it's all over the New Testament. I mean, come on, 42 one another's, okay? Church attendance is assumed by New Testament writers. Excommunication and things like that make no sense if there's not an inside that you're then kicked out of, right? And so church, uh, church membership is a huge thing. So relationship with Christ, relationship with other believers, and then the third part is your relationship to the world. The first century church believed it was the obligation of every Christian to preach the gospel. Um, that means you're going to influence your, your spouses, your kids, your uh, neighbors, your employers, all the lost people you know. Okay? And there's so many commands for us to evangelize, for us to preach the word, for us to tell the lost about Christ. And even in the book of Acts, when Paul um, persecutes the church and they scatter, what did they do? Did they just run? No, wherever they went, they told people about Jesus. And then more churches um, sprang up. Okay, So this was a, a necessary thing. Christians that were ashamed of Jesus... They weren't really allowed to be part of the church because they took it serious. Jesus said, if you won't acknowledge me before men, 
you know, because not acknowledging him is to deny him. He will do, he will deny you before the Father, before the angels. And the church was like, well, you're not going to be part of the church if you're not going to proclaim Jesus. Okay. So church membership, that's who's part of the church. Very biblical, because again, this is right after the biblical witness ends. Um, so the next question is church government, meaning how's the church organized and run? Who has the authority and so forth. By the year 100, it was not complicated. There were two types of leaders. You had elders and you had deacons. And one way that you can uh, describe that is you could say those who are chosen by God, that would be the elders. Those who are chosen by man, those would be the deacons. And it's not like, oh, that makes the deacons bad. It's just when you read how the scripture describes those who are called to ministry as elders or even apostles, you know, when there were apostles, it's different. Um, and, and I'll go over that. I'll go over that. Those who are chosen by God are spoken of in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, because it says Christ gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. Now, we don't have apostles and prophets anymore. I'm pretty convinced of that. We do have evangelists, which would be missionaries. That's what that word uh, corresponds to. It's not talking about you know, handing out tracts. The evangelist is the church planter, like Paul was. And then you got pastor teachers. So we still have the missionaries. We still have the pastors. And it says Christ gave them to the church. He gave them to the church to equip the church so that the church does the work of the ministry. Now, if Christ is the one who gives them to the church, then Christ is the one who chose them. That's why I'm saying pastors are chosen by God. Now, how do they know? They get this inward call by the Holy Spirit. I knew almost immediately after becoming a Christian I wanted to be a pastor. I just felt this, this burn or this call in me, right? But just because you have that feeling doesn't mean you're ready for it. It was many years later, 13 years later, till the church finally recognized that in me. Okay, that's the second component. So you have the inward call, but then there's an external call. That same Holy Spirit that's letting you know you're supposed to do this is going to let everybody in your church know you're supposed to do this. And that's how you kind of tell, because there's a lot of people out there who think they should be pastors, and we look at them and say, no, you shouldn't. You know, those people shouldn't, because if they should, then the Spirit would convince us that they should. But we look at their lives, we see they're divisive or immature or whatever it might be, and then um, we're like, yeah, no, nah, that's not going to happen. Um, so, so, yeah, and we also see the example in, in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, for at least missionary work. So Paul and Barnabas were already functioning as pastors in the church of Antioch, and then the Holy Spirit says, set Paul and Barnabas apart for the mission work I'm going to send them to. And so the Holy Spirit tells them, but then the church recognizes it because the church lays their hands on them, right? So it's, it's, you, have the, you have God, but you have the church having a, a role in this, okay? Now, by the time you get to the year 100, there were no more apostles, and even the early church, the apostolic fathers will tell us that, right? And I haven't defined what, who the apostolic fathers are, but, you know, they're the earliest writers after the apostles die, okay? And they're telling us there's no more apostles, okay? So, as I said, you only have the pastor teacher left. Some people will say you have prophets. I have not seen a credible case for that. In fact, every prophet that's ever prophesied over me has been wrong. So, I mean, it just, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but uh, since you mainly have the pastors and teachers, that's what remains after uh, the year 100, then 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are going to be the primary text you go to because they lay out the qualifications. Um, 
And again, those word pastor, I throw this around a lot. This is not the historically favorite term for the office, okay? Um, elder, bishop have been far more used throughout history than pastor. Pastor is more of an American thing, I would say. Um, it's not wrong. It's biblical. But, um, you know, these other terms are used more in the Bible, bishop and, and elder, and I'm, I'm going to go over that. But the point is, these are biblical terms, and they were all just one office. They were used interchangeably. And I think that's something that uh, I need to prove really quickly, right? And so um, these were not just titles. They were descriptive of what the person does. So the word bishop comes from the Greek word episkopos, which means overseer, one who takes care of administration, leading, planning. The word elder is the Greek word presbuteros. That's where the word Presbyterian comes from. Presbuteros, right? And that refers to somebody being spiritually mature. The word elder has no connotation for your physical age. It really has a lot to do with your spiritual age, your spiritual maturity, okay? We all know old people who act like babies, and we know there's young people, younger people who are mature beyond their years, okay? Ultimately, the Holy Spirit calls you know, people who he wants to be, you know, Episcopos and Presbuteros, okay? And then the, the last one, pastor or teachers, poimino, which is just shepherd. It's the shepherd, okay? So it's the shepherding and the teaching. I think the reason why we focus on the title pastor so much in our society is because we tend to think more of his role as a shepherd, somebody caring for the flock, building the flock up, um, which is good. I think that's a good emphasis rather than just administration or maturity. But all three of these titles are used interchangeably in the scripture. There was no hierarchy. You know, later on, the church is going to separate these words and turn them into different offices and create a hierarchy that will eventually evolve into the worst stuff you could think of with Catholicism. Um, but that's not there in the year 100. In the year 100, let me just show you what Acts chapter 20 shows us. In verse 17... It says, now from Miletus, uh, Paul sent to Ephesus and called for the presbuteros. So he calls for the elders to come to him. So the elders of the church of Ephesus come to Paul. And then he's talking to them. And in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20, he then says this. To those presbuteros, to those elders, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has appointed you as episcopos, overseers or bishops, right? And he says he has appointed you to shepherd or pastor, poimano, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. A couple things to notice there. The Holy Spirit appoints these leaders, again, chosen by God. They're called presbuteros, elders. They were called to episcopos, be overseers or bishops. Why? Because they're paimonioing. I'm not supposed to put an I-N-G on the end of a Greek word, but that's what they're doing. Um, they're, they're shepherding or pastoring the flock. So, all three words, same office, same person, used interchangeably. So very easy by the year 100. Now, the chosen church leaders, okay, um, these are the ones chosen by the church rather than by God. Not that God doesn't have a hand in it. He does. Uh, but the reason why I say that is you, there's no such thing as a church without elders or pastors. But there can be churches without deacons. In fact, the church existed without deacons until Acts chapter 6. Okay, so, so again, the deacons, they're church leaders. They're church officers. But they're chosen by the church itself 
rather than chosen by God. Okay, pastors chosen by God, confirmed by the church. Deacons chosen by the church, confirmed by the church. That's that's the difference. It doesn't diminish the deacon's importance. It's just a, an important distinction to make. Okay, um, so the servants again were called deacons. The word actually means to serve, diakonos. Um, you know that's that's who they were. That's what they did. They served. Um, and Acts chapter 6 shows their origin and the basis of their selection. Ministry got too big for the apostles who were functioning as elders at that point. So they asked the church to appoint specific people, seven people, okay, for specific tasks. And then the leaders would vet them and lay their hands on them. Okay, so the church chooses them. Then the leaders are the ones who ordain them. And then they go and do the specific task they were called to so that the leaders could focus on the word and on prayer, right? Pretty, pretty simple. Now, 1 Timothy 3, when it gives the qualifications of deacons, really shows it's the same as what we're seeing in Acts chapter 6. Um, and so there, there's no passage that, that seems to indicate that the Holy Spirit's the one selecting the deacons. But of course, when the apostles give the qualifications, he says these need to be men filled by the Spirit. Okay, so, they, so the Holy Spirit's involved, but it's not the same as what you're seeing with God, in a sense, choosing the people who are going to be pastors. Uh, now, it's up to each local church as to whether or not they're going to have deacons. A church is not in disorder or sin just because they don't have deacons. Now, if they need deacons, they should have them. There's no good reason. So, for example, Calvary Chapel doesn't believe in deacons. Um, they say everybody's technically a deacon because the word means servant. Now, that's true, but I'm going to say that is a foolish argument because Paul gives us characteristics and qualifications for a specific office. And when Paul writes the book of Philippians, he addresses it to the elders and the deacons. And deacons there does not mean the rest of the church. It's a specific group of people that are supposed to be deacons if you have a church big enough that needs deacons. Okay, To say we're not even going to have the office, we're not even going to vet people for it because we're going to treat everybody as if they're a deacon that's sub-biblical, okay? It doesn't mean they're not a true church, okay? But it's, it's sub-biblical, okay? Um, so pretty much it's up to each local church if they're going to have one. My suggestion is, pastors, if, if you're a pastor at a church and you are finding yourself distracted from preaching and teaching and praying and counseling because you're doing other stuff, you need deacons. It's that simple. And those deacons need to do those other things. Now, when you're planting a church and you only got 20 people, um, you're unfortunately having to do a lot of the stuff by yourself and you might not have deacons. But as soon as you have other leaders and that church is growing, you probably want to get deacons as, as soon as you can. If you don't, it's going to be to your own peril and the peril of your own people. Okay. Now, a little more on this. This almost sounds like a, a systematic theology lesson if you think about it. I mean, I'm, it sounds like I'm talking about the church now and I'm exhorting the church now. But just understand, I'm doing this from the standpoint of what was the church like in the year 100, okay? And what was the church like in the year 100? They only had the New Testament. So I guess it makes sense for me to say that's how it was because that's how it should be. Now go and do likewise. But anyhow, okay. So putting it all together then, there was no hierarchy of leadership by the year 100. There was no ranking of believers, okay? The structure of the medieval church that we're going to see a, a little later in this class, not today, but like many lectures from now, that was unknown in the year 100. Being a pastor was a burden with a lot of responsibility, 
a threat of a stricter judgment, and there were no riches. Now, we're supposed to be paid well and not be poor, but you're not going to get rich off of this. There's nothing in the year 100 that smells like these religious leaders with expensive clothes and gold and pomp and, and all that kind of stuff and power. That's not what we've been called to, but that's eventually what church leaders will become. And again, to the detriment of the church. Now, there's also no evidence for apostolic succession by the year AD 100. Now, I defined that before. Apostolic succession is the idea, the claim of both the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church that the apostles ordained people to replace them as bishops. Those bishops then ordain others, who then ordain others, who then ordain others. Only the only legitimate leaders of a church have to have this succession that goes back to the apostles. So the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox all believe they have it, but they reject Protestantism and everything we do because they say we don't have it. Now, obviously, if you look for it in the Bible, you're not going to find it. It's not there. It's a tradition that comes up later. And what I'm saying is that <laughs> there's, no, there's no hint of it by the year 100. Okay? Again, it's a later invention, and that's why... I don't really care if a Roman Catholic doesn't think I'm a legitimate leader in a church, right? Because that whole apostolic succession thing is, is extra biblical for certain. Um, Clement of Rome is the first apostolic father to write something. He writes in the first century, just a year after the book of Revelation is written. He writes um, <coughs> the first letter of Clement. He writes it to the church of Corinth, and I'll talk a little about that later. And when he writes it, he's talking about leadership because that's why he's writing them. And I'll, and I'll get to that. But as he's talking about leadership, there's a couple things that are clear. There's no hierarchy and presbyteros and episkopos, meaning uh, elder and overseer, are still the same office. He's using them interchangeably. Okay, so it's exactly like I'm saying. Okay, and that's a first century work. It's a really interesting letter. The guy knew his Bible. Uh, it's like 60-something chapters, his letter. It takes a while to get through it, but it's, it's worth reading. It's edifying. Okay? Now, um, it's the same with Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Apostle. He's going to write in the right before the, right, like around the 120s, 130s range. And even in his descriptions, no hierarchy. Elders, bishops, same thing. The problem is around 110, you get a, a well-known bishop from Antioch named Ignatius, and he's the first one to separate bishops from elders and create the hierarchy. And he does it as early as 110, and that's what starts it, okay? He creates a threefold hierarchy, bishops, elders, and deacons, okay? But we saw, it doesn't matter how early that is, we saw in Acts chapter 20, elder, pastor, and uh, bishop, same thing. Okay, same thing, and then deacons are under them. So what the New Testament shows us is a, is a two-tier leadership, elder deacon. What Ignatius gives us is a three-tier. Okay? And at first, when we get to Ignatius, you're going to see that not everybody bought into this. Okay? Again, you know, Clement didn't, um, Polycarp didn't, the Didache didn't. But by the time you get to the end of the second century, when you get to around the year 200, Ignatius' way wins. Okay? But by the year 100... That is not the case. Um, so anyhow, so that deals with church government. And by the way, I put that little picture there to the side um, just to say that the thing that blows my mind is that as Protestants, we don't follow this uh, hierarchy 
And yet, what have American Protestants done? We've just given it a different name. With senior pastor, associate pastor, we've created a hierarchy. The senior pastor is the bishop. The other pastors are the elders. It's the same dumb thing. And it doesn't need to be that way, right? You have elders and you have deacons. And among the elders, it's equality. But anyhow, that being said, now we move to the issue of church ordinances, Um, In the year 100, church ordinances refers to baptism and the Lord's Supper. There were only two ordinances that were practiced. So what is an ordinance? Well, you're not going to find the word in the New Testament, but it is a good word that describes these things. Okay. Now, some churches will use the word sacrament. You're not going to find that word in the New Testament either. But sacrament is not a good description. What is a sacrament? I will tell you in a later lesson. There's going to be a lesson where it's all about something called sacramentalism and sacerdotalism. I know those sound like big, cool words. You're going to have these mastered, um, and you're going to know why they're unbiblical. Okay? Um, so instead of sacrament, we have ordinance. Why are we call it an ordinance? Because it's ordained by God. Right? That's why we call it that. Okay? Now, for something to be a church ordinance, just to give the rationale of it, it has to be something that was first commanded by Christ, and then it had to be practiced by the New Testament church, and it had to have the gospel in it, okay? And so, for example, Jesus commanded the Lord's Supper, you know, before his arrest, and he commanded baptism after his resurrection. Now, you have a group called the Plymouth Brethren who are going to try to tell you that Foot washing should be an ordinance as well because Jesus did it. And then he said, now do as I do. But here's the problem with foot washing. One, I know some people here who would never do it because they hate feet. No, I'm just kidding. That has, <laughs> that's not the real problem. Um, the problem with the foot washing as an ordinance is that there's no indication in the epistles or the book of Acts that the church practiced it as a church-wide thing. But in all those, we see the Lord's Supper and we see baptism. And then second, the gospel is not portrayed in foot washing. You don't see the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in cleaning somebody's feet. You just see service, okay? Um, But in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, in each aspect of it, you are seeing a clear pointing to Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, okay? So that's why there were only two ordinances then and... um, and yeah, and that's all there should be. Um, now, again, the Roman Catholic Church believes in seven sacraments. We'll get to how they got there and how that number um, comes up. That's, again, a lot later in this class. But what I'm telling you is the snapshot of the year 100, this is what it looked like, two ordinances. And you might be saying, hey, we only got two ordinances. That's right, because what do we believe? Sola Scriptura. You know, the Scripture is the final authority on, on what we do. But anyhow... Uh, so the next question that relates to the ordinances is how do you do them? Okay. How do you do the ordinances? Well, so simple questions, who, how, and why let's, uh, let's start with that with baptism, who should be baptized? Well, the book of Acts and the letters, the epistles of the new Testament make it clear that only believers get baptized. Okay. You don't have unbelievers getting baptized. You don't even have babies getting baptized. Look at this kid. He does not look like a happy camper. He looks like he's pretty ticked off. Like, like, what are you doing to me? When I grow up, I'm going to get you punk. I mean, that's what's on that kid's mind, right? But in the New Testament, we never see somebody passively baptized. Um, We know for a fact 
that infant baptism was not practiced in the first century. Um, now, Presbyterians and, and Catholics, now they have a different theology of infant baptism, but they'll say that, well, hold on, households were baptized. And when you're preaching to a household, there's bound to be babies there. When we're talking about how big, of a, how big a household is, and when it says the whole household got baptized, you must have infants that have been baptized. That's a weak argument. It really is, especially given the fact that in Acts chapter 16 with the Philippian jailer, it says Paul preached and his whole household believed. So that there lets me know his whole household didn't have any infants because everybody, <coughs> excuse me, everybody in that house was able to believe, you know, and, and so then they got baptized. Furthermore, in the middle and late second century, you have church fathers writing not to baptize babies. And why not to baptize babies? Now, when you get to the third century and you get to the year 220, so you have Tertullian around 180 saying you better not baptize babies. And then just 40 years later, you have Cyprian saying you better baptize babies. So there was a switch that took place between the end of the second century and the beginning of the third century. But that wasn't an issue here. Okay? If, if infant baptism was as ancient and goes back to the early, the beginnings of the church, like these guys say, then the earliest fathers should not have been saying, don't do it. That's all I'm saying. But anyhow, um, furthermore, you know, when you look at Acts chapter 8, um, you know, verses uh, 36 and 37, what does Philip say to the Ethiopian? If you believe, you may. That's who gets baptized. Okay? And so that's the who. What's the, the how? Well, the word baptize just means immerse. Honestly, I wish our English translations would stop using the word baptize. It's a cognate, okay? Baptism just comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to plunge or dip, okay? It's not to pour, it's not to sprinkle, it's to immerse. I wish we would just call it immerse. Imagine what happens. In fact, when you're reading your New Testament this year, every time you see the word baptism, don't read baptism, just read it as immerse and see how it changes what you're picturing and what you're thinking. Because this word baptism now has 2,000 years of extra biblical meaning thrust on it that you can't not have in your head when you think of the word baptism. It's just hard. It's hard. You start thinking of everything you've ever heard, but then when you look like it's just immersion, um, it actually simplif uh, simplifies it uh, a lot. All right, so um, baptism, what does it mean? Uh, why is it important? Well, it's the first step for the believer. Now notice you're already a believer, okay? If you believe, you may, okay? And all who believe are justified or saved. New Testament teaches that. So baptism does not uh, convey grace to you, okay? Um, and that's what sacramentalists believe. Sacramentalists believe that baptism itself is actually what gives you the forgiveness of sins. Now, when you get to Roman Catholicism, they're going to up it a notch and, and believe it's a sacrament ex opere operato. I know everybody knows their Latin. It just means the very act of baptism itself is what forgives. And that's why eventually you'll have pagan armies where its chief converts, and then pretty much its army, not even ever knowing anything about Christ, will walk under a tree, and a priest will just be sprinkling them all. And the theology was, hey, they got sprinkled. The baptism itself, ex opere operato, forgives them and makes them Christians. That's very unbiblical. Now, not all 
people who believe in baptismal regeneration will go that far. Some of them will think it needs your faith as a cooperation. But the bottom line is that's not biblical either. Now, it's interesting. Baptism was right after you believed back then. There was no baptism classes or you're going to go through two weeks of baptism instruction. I'm not saying those things are wrong because you don't want people to get baptized who don't fully understand. But man, we should not be putting as many barriers um, you know, in between baptism and, and a person's initial proclamation of faith. We just, we, we shouldn't. Now, in the early church, if you, uh, you know, you got baptized, you then became a church member, um, you're now able to fellowship, receive doctrinal instruction, and partake of communion, the other um, ordinance, okay? And, and I put this little note at the bottom, evangelicals see it as believer baptism because the New Testament teaches we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. Baptism, by its very definition, is a work. Okay, it's a verb. It's passively done to you, just like circumcision. Um, you know, as I said, I spent time in the Church of Christ, and they'd say, well, you're not the one baptizing yourself. Yeah, and there ain't no baby circumcising himself. And yet, Paul treats circumcision as if it's a work of the law. Okay, so the point is, baptism is not what saves you. You're saved prior to that. These folks have a major misreading of Acts chapter 2, verse 38, because they're not looking at it in the Greek. Um, and you don't have to know the Greek. I'm just going to say this for the benefit of those who do. You know, in English, it says, Repent and be baptized, each one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But in the Greek, repent is second person plural, meaning y'all repent. And then be baptized, third person singular. Each one of you get baptized. And then it's for the forgiveness of all your sins or your all sins. So y'all repent, okay, for the forgiveness of your all sins, right? The second person plurals go together. The repentance and forgiveness of sins go together. Now sandwiched in between that is each one of you needs to get baptized, okay? But the forgiveness of sins is going to be tied to the repentance, and guess what? In other parts of the book of Acts, repentance and faith are used interchangeably. To repent is to turn away from something. But if you're turning away from something, then you're also doing the opposite, which is turning to something, which is faith. If you're repenting, you're believing. And if you're believing, you're repenting. So it's the faith that brings the forgiveness of sins. And, and it seemed like the early church understood that. Okay. Now, the Lord's Supper. Um, the Lord's Supper, same three questions, who, how, and why. Well, only a disciple could partake of the Lord's Supper, okay? Um, first, uh, yeah, if you need to turn that down because it's too hot, it's okay. Yeah, go ahead and turn that down because I knew it was going to get hot in here. Um, so 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 promises judgment on the people who don't, or I mean the people who partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You cannot take it in a worthy manner if Christ isn't your Lord because you're proclaiming his death for you. Okay? You're proclaiming his death for you, and you're supping with him in a sense, and you don't believe in him? That's definitely to take it in an unworthy manner. So only a disciple should partake of the Lord's Supper. Um, for all of church history until recently, only baptized disciples could partake of it. Then in America, we don't want to offend people because we're secret sensitive, so we're not going to tell somebody they can't take communion. Baloney. Okay? If you're not willing to identify with Christ publicly with the act of baptism, which is the first command we're supposed to obey after we believe, then you are not entitled, in my opinion, to be partaking of the continual identification with him 
through the Lord's Supper. It just doesn't make any sense. In fact, baptism being this one-time act paints the picture of justification, which is a one-time thing the moment we believe, whereas the Lord's Supper, since it's repeated and it's ongoing, paints the picture of sanctification, which is the part of salvation where the Lord is continuing to save us each day and make us more like Jesus. Okay, the bottom line is you don't put sanctification before justification. That's Roman Catholicism. No, it's justification first and then sanctification. Baptism first, then the Lord's Supper, okay? It's not that hard, but people want to complicate it because they don't like saying no. And gosh, that, you know, American parent that doesn't want to deny Johnny and Susie of anything just doesn't want to say no to their three-year-old as the communion plate's being passed. Well, little Susie wants that grape juice. And why can't she? She says, she sings, Jesus loves me, this I know. You know, and Father Abraham had many sons. So who are you to tell my three-year-old? Because you know what? Your three-year-old, when she's 17, might be a blasphemer, okay? We don't know if she believes or he believes or whatever. And the bottom line is, um, you know, you're, you're having them partake of the body and the blood of the Lord, which, by the way, you know, let me, uh, you know, put this, this slide back up for a second. You know, um, or actually, is that on? Oh, no, that's going to be on the next slide. So I don't want to, I'm going to get a little ahead of myself then real quickly. But the bottom line is the Lord's Supper is a memorial. We do it to remember Jesus, but it's more than that. 1 Corinthians 10 says it's participation, okay? That's why you don't eat food sacrificed to idols because you can't participate at the table of demons and the table of the Lord, okay? The one bread shows we're united with each other as one body, but it also shows we're united with Christ. We participate with Him. There's a sense in which we are participating in His death, burial, and resurrection every time we take the Lord's Supper. And you might say, wait a minute, that sounds crazy, but we believe the same thing about baptism, we believe we're participating in his death, burial, and resurrection when we're buried with him and raised with him. Not literally, but these are symbols of our union with him. Okay, so you're going to have an unsaved person or even a, a, a small child that doesn't know this stuff. You're going to have them proclaim by their action unity with Christ when they don't even understand? No. So I, I know that was probably a, a soapbox, and you might be thinking, this is a church history class, man. Here you are, you know, pontificating, darn tootin'. Because again, we're talking about the stuff that the early church practiced. We'll get to the traditional stuff that comes after in a minute. But th there's a little more I want to say about the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> the how, okay, so the who is a believer, but the how really depends on its relation to Passover. And, um, and honestly, I, I don't think there's any other way to do it than the right way, okay? Christ used unleavened bread. I think it's wrong. When churches use leavened bread, the unleavened symbolizes his sinlessness. Leaven was a symbol of sin. You can't just add it because you want to. There's a lot of churches who say, ah, oh, this doesn't matter. Okay. So it was unleavened bread and it was crushed grapes. That simple. That's what was used uh, even when Passover was, because uh, was, uh, remember the Lord's Supper comes out of Passover and you may or may not know this. We're going to do a Passover Seder again this year at the church on Good Friday. Just throwing that out there now. And if you've never done it, you probably don't understand the Lord's Supper as much as you, you should. After you do it, you're going to be like, I get the Lord's Supper now. There's four cups in the Passover meal. And the third cup is called the cup of redemption. And in the third cup, there's a piece of unleavened bread, a centerpiece. So you've got three pieces, which are called the unity, yet it's three. Hmm. You take the second one and you break it. 
hmm, what's happening there? And then you take that and you pass it around and everybody eats it. And then you drink the cup of redemption. That is the only part of the Passover where unleavened bread is being broken and passed around. That's the only part that Christ then would have instituted the Lord's Supper. And it's no coincidence that he takes the second of the three, breaks it, and says, this is my body, right? And then gives us the cup and says, drink, this is my blood, which again was the cup of redemption. Passover always pointed forward to what Christ would do. So you can't change the grape juice to Coca-Cola. And you can't change the bread to Doritos. And there's people who will do that. Or in the name of contextualization, you'll have some missionaries, you know, change the, the, the juice to sake and, um, and the, the bread to rice cakes. I, I know our Japanese friends might like that, but that's not how we do it. This is non-negotiable. It needs to be the unleavened bread and it needs to be um, the fruit of the vine. Now, um, sacramentalists believe that the elements of communion really become the flesh and blood of Christ. The Catholics, it's transubstantiation. The Lutherans um, hold to something called consubstantiation, which I'd be hitting that if I ever get to the second church history class. Um, but it's that Christ spiritually fills it to where it's still his blood in his body, but not literally, but it is. It's kind of weird. Uh, most Lutherans have a hard time explaining it. Um, and then, of course, the Catholics will just say that, no, it's his blood in his body, but it tastes like bread and wine. Um, well, all that's unknown to the church of AD 100. Now, sacramentalists will be like, yes, but John chapter 6, he said, unless you eat my blood and drink my flesh, you cannot have eternal life. But then in John 6, 63, he says, he's like the flesh profits you nothing. My words are spirit. He's more or less saying, look, I'm being spiritual here. I'm being metaphorical. And so he wasn't saying you literally got to eat his body and drink his blood. Um, and I've already covered this, this next part. Uh, we see it as a memorial. So did the church in the early times, but it's more than a memorial. It's participation. Um, and so then you might be saying, well, what do I say to the Catholic who brings up the Jesus said, this is my body. He was very clear. This is my body. Jesus also said, I'm the door. Is he made out of wood? He said, I am the light. Is he a flashlight or a torch? He said, he's the way. Is Jesus a stone road or are these just metaphors? So what I just gave you was what was called a reductio ad absurdum. It's reduce their argument to absurdity by taking the same type of argument and apply it to something else. And if it's absurd there, then it's going to be absurd here if the parameters are the same and they are the same. I am the, the, the way or I am the light is no different than saying this is my body. Okay, it's a, it's a direct correspondence, and yet it's clear that he's being metaphorical, not, uh, not literal. And could you imagine what it would mean if that really was his body? That means at that first Lord's Supper, as he broke that bread, it turned into his own dead flesh. And he's like, here, have some. It's just, it's, it's bizarre. It's absurd. And so that's why we don't believe it. And of course, it's unbiblical, blasphemous. I could add to the list. Okay, so church worship service. All indications in the year 100 show that worship was simple rather than complex. Okay, they had preaching, they had meeting days. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 tells us it was the first of the week. They had meeting places. Acts 2:46 tells us the temple from house to house, stuff like that. At their meetings, we know they sang, Colossians 3:16. We know they preached. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. We know they read the scriptures publicly, 1 Timothy 4, 13. We know they took the Lord's Supper every week, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we know they fellowshiped. Um, 
uh, every day, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they took offerings on the first day of the week, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. And by the way, one thing I forgot to mention when it came to the Lord's Supper is how often should it be done? Um, it was always done every week until the Reformation, and Calvin wanted to keep it every week, and it was a, a government official, a magistrate that said, no, we need to do it once a month. Calvin protested, they overrode his protest, and Presbyterians have been doing it once a month ever since. And so I think it is a fair challenge to say, you better have a better reason than a secular magistrate. Is that why 500 years later you're still obeying this guy? That guy's been dead a long time. Okay, might as well go back to the scriptural witness where they did this um, every week. But the sad thing is, you know, the, the colonies, American colonies and all that, um, the biggest group of religious folks were the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists. They carried that tradition for two or three hundred years. And so when the Baptists and the Methodists all got their start and, 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 and stuff like that, um, they just kept that tradition. And then you hear these, these silly reasons like, well, if we take the Lord's Supper every week, won't we make it so ritualistic that it loses its meanings? Oh, well, if we read the scripture every week, won't it become uh, ritualistic and it loses its meaning? If we pray together every week, won't that be, you start to see how dumb it is. And imagine if we were doing such a, imagine if the Lord was doing such a work among us to where we're evangelizing to such a point where people are being saved every week. Would we dare say we shouldn't baptize every week because it'll lose its meaning? No. So it's a foolish argument. There's a reason the church did it um, every Sunday, and it's implied that they did it every Sunday in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So there's no good reason not to do it, and that is a, a foolish argument that they make. But anyway, getting back to, to this, the early church worship services, or the worship services by the year 100, central to the church meeting was kerygma. That's the word for preaching. And uh, it, it's more than just preaching. It, it's a sermon, but it has to have the gospel in it. It has to have a gospel presentation and a call for people to repent. It had to have the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. One, because believers need to be called. They need to be summoned to repent. Otherwise, why would they? And second, Christians need to hear it again and again so that they can know how to call people to repent. And so preaching doctrine is good and all, but if it lacks a gospel presentation, it's not kerygma, it's just teaching. Okay, for it to be preaching, there has to have exhortation and kerygma. There has to be the gospel presentation. So you look at Peter's sermon at Pentecost, totally kerygma, absolutely kerygma. Uh, where did they meet? Uh, in early in the book of Acts, it was the temple. Uh, throughout Acts, it ends up being synagogues and homes. Eventually, it will move to church buildings. Uh, but, you know, homes back then, they, they, weren't, they weren't like our homes today. Uh, especially in Israel, you know, there, there would be an upper room. And, and even in the rest of the Mediterranean basin, you would, the people who own homes, the houses would have an upper room that could easily fit 60, 70 people. It was just a room where, you know, guests would sleep or whatever. There's nothing in it. And even when you come into the house, there was kind of like a courtyard called an atrium, um, kind of like we have a courtyard here. We could fit 40 extra people in this courtyard if this were a house. So you got your entrance into the property. You have the courtyard. Then you have the house. And then in the house, you have the upper room. You could have a decent-sized congregation in a home back then. Eventually, when you're not being hunted by the government, um, you can meet in places bigger than homes and gather larger crowds. But, uh, but during that time, it was limited to homes. Um, and they met on Sundays. We know that uh, by the time you get to Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, we know Sunday was called the Lord's Day. 
So that being said, I still have a ways to go. Um, I knew this was ambitious because I want to start the Apostolic Fathers. Um, I want to finish the Apostolic Fathers, and we're not going to meet for two weeks because I'm going to be in Israel. Um, so the thing is, uh, do you guys mind me going 20 more minutes just to finish this? I don't, say again? Okay. I know asking it that way is like, who's going to say no, you know? And so I kind of just like, anyway, well, let's just roll with it. The faster I get into it, the sooner I'm done. If you guys have any problem with it, you can blame Albert. And if Albert's too small of a target, blame my wife because she picks on him. Um, so anyhow, apostolic fathers, um, what is an apostolic father? It's not an apostle. Okay. Apostolic father. These were the writings that, okay. So we call the writings that came immediately or closest after the new Testament. We call them the writings of the apostolic fathers. This was a term coined in the 1600s or the 17th century, because it was believed at that time that all these writers personally knew the apostles. So let's say like, you know, the apostles were in their 60s and 70s and you were a member of their church in your 30s. They then die. OK, you're now 40, 50 years old. You're a leader of the church. They are long gone, but you knew them. You heard them teach. You remember what they said. And so so in a sense, they're not apostles, but they knew the apostles. They carry some legitimate memory. Now, scholars today don't believe all of them actually knew the apostles. Some of them did. Ignatius probably did. Polycarp uh, definitely did. Clement did, right? Um, Hermas might have. Um, so, but then some of them might not have, but they might have known people who knew them. The point is, these were people who they were born when the apostles were still alive. And they were probably part of the church when the apostles were still alive. They might not have been at the same time at the same place. You know, just because John is alive when this guy is 30 years old, well, John was in Ephesus. This guy might have been in Antioch, right? Um, but the point is, there's overlap in their lives, okay? Um, so it's important to make a distinction between the term apostolic fathers and church fathers. Church fathers covers everybody from 2nd century to the 6th century, but right before them, you got that first generation of post-apostle leaders, and they get their own status, okay? They get apostolic fathers because they kind of form a bridge between the time when the apostles still walked and the time when no one would remember them right they're that bridge generation and so they're important to study and they do give us a lot of uh, a lot of writings so let me just go through them clement of rome okay i, I mentioned he wrote a letter to the corinthians in the year 96 to settle a dispute uh, i'll give you the long and short of it really fast the younger folks in that church defrocked or uh, that what that means is to remove his pastors. They unpastored the pastors and said, you guys are old, you're irrelevant, get out of here, right? And then Clement hears this, he's like, that is not the way this is supposed to work. So he writes them a letter rebuking them. And the thrust of his argument is that, listen, the father sent Christ. He appointed Christ and sent him. Christ appointed apostles. Apostles appointed elders, and he makes it clear there, elders, bishops, same thing. He's like, so if what we're having is the father appoints the son, the son appoints the apostles, the apostles appoint the elders, then what happens is the elders are going to appoint their own successors. 
You don't have a bunch of young bucks come in and fire them and then independently appoint theirs. There's, there seems to be an order. So the guys who are leaders now, they will pass on the torch. And so that was, in a sense, the, the, the thrust of, of what he wrote. Now, the next one was Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch. And I've already mentioned to you, he's the one who's going to give us the three tiers of, uh, of church leaders. Now, he was arrested as a Christian and he was taken to Rome by military escort. And on the way, he met with a lot of his Christian friends. He wrote seven letters, six of them to churches. One of them was a personal letter to Polycarp. Um, and in his letters, his emphasis was local church unity. But he said the only way you're going to have local church unity is if everybody surrounds themselves around the bishop. So that's why he said you have to have a bishop and you have to obey the bishop as if he was Christ. Eh, problem there, right? But, but he said that's how you're going to have the churches stay together. Um, and so the, the, then people are like, well, what about the elders that we keep saying? Well, the, well, the elders are different from the bishop. They assist him, but he's the head. You can't have the Lord's Supper. You can't do anything. There can't be preaching. There can be no baptisms unless that one bishop is present. Okay, so that was Ignatius. Uh, he gets killed publicly in Rome. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's him. Um, the, the next writing, okay, is the Didache, um, or Didache, uh, which is purported to be the teaching of the 12 apostles to the Gentiles. So it's a summary of apostolic teaching to the Gentiles. It comes from Syria, probably written around 100, just a couple years after the book of Revelation. It's the oldest uh, surviving handbook on church practices. Super valuable if you want to know how the early church did things, right? So there's two parts. Part one is doctrine. Part two is practice. The doctrine part is about there's two ways to live, the right way, the wrong way, the way to heaven, the way to hell, you know? And then part two gives you detailed instructions like how do you baptize someone? right? How do you, how should you do praying and fasting? And how should you take the Lord's Supper? Who should be church leaders? And by the way, they make an argument about church leadership here that some people think was a response to what Ignatius was teaching, that, that whoever wrote the Didache wasn't, uh, wasn't on board with that, okay? Um, the next one is then uh, Papias of Hierapolis in, uh, in Phygria, which is in Asia Minor. Um, we only have fragments of his, and the main thing he was trying to do was preserve sayings of Christ, oral sayings of Christ, traditions that didn't make their way into the four Gospels, right? So there was clearly oral tradition that the apostles were pulling from, right? I mean, how could Paul be quoting Jesus as Jesus is quoted in Matthew chapter 19 about marriage and divorce? When Paul's writing 1 Corinthians like 10 years before Matthew wrote Matthew, yet it looks like Paul's quoting Matthew, but he couldn't have. Matthew was written later. So it means there was this pool of oral tradition where the church knew what Christ said, what he taught, and what the gospel writers needed for their purposes ended up there. What some of the epistle writers needed ended up there. But then Papias is like, but there's more stuff. Because when Jerusalem got burned to the ground and the Jews, Jewish believers in Jesus had to leave Israel and they're now scattered among the Gentile churches, some of them were bringing traditions of what they heard Jesus said that weren't in the Gospels. Papias wrote them down. Now, what I'm going to tell you is the early church then looked at them afterwards and said a lot of this stuff is garbage. And they were right. Some of those things probably were not legitimate oral traditions. But that's what Papias is useful for. And uh, he's one of the guys that tells us that, um, 
that Matthew was originally written in Hebrew. Most scholars think he was out to lunch on that. Um, you know, the, the next one, the epistle of Barnabas, okay, it is pseudepigraphal, meaning Barnabas did not write it. But it's claiming to be written by Paul's buddy Barnabas. We know it was written around the year 120, so it's still early. Um, and what it's offering is how do Christians read the Old Testament? Because Jews, by this point, have completely uh, redefined themselves in a way that excludes Christianity and tries to disprove Christianity by saying we're reading the Old Testament wrong. The Epistle of Barnabas says the Jews got this wrong. Now, here's the thing. It's a very anti-Jewish book, and it gives us a lot of the anti-Semitic tropes that the church will later use to persecute Jews and kill them. Christ killers, God's replaced them, they're a done, lost, stupid people. Um, that stuff comes up in Barnabas. I don't think any Jew would have written that, and yet Barnabas was a Jew. Um, and it, it is very Alexandrian, and what I mean by that is in Alexandria you have the allegorical method. The way that this guy starts saying we should read the Old Testament is allegorically. If that's your argument, then, man, you're only going to convince the other Jews that they're right. We have to read the Old Testament wrong, uh, you know, in order to believe in Jesus. So I think Barnabas is useful to show us what not to do. <laughs> um, the Epistle of Barnabas. The Shepherd of Hermas is like a wannabe book of Revelation written somewhere between 100 and 140 uh, in Rome by a Christian named Hermas. He claimed to be a prophet. He said that he received revelations from two heavenly figures a shepherd um, and pretty much his whole thing focuses on how we're supposed to live a morally pure life right now um, he deals with the question what do you do if you sin after baptism can you be forgiven and this starts to show that pretty early they were starting to misunderstand baptism and so it, they were starting to think well maybe baptism is how it, they were starting to think sacramentally Okay, well, I confessed my sins and I got baptized. Now I'm forgiven, but I just sinned right after. Am I doomed? And some Christians were like, yes, yes, you are. Hermes says, well, hold on. You could sin one time after baptism and be okay. But if you sin twice, you're done. And my thought was like, how are these guys defining sin? Because we sin every single day. So you start to see some guys were missing the mark at this point. Now, later, the shepherd of Hermes becomes really popular when the church becomes more sacramental. Now, when it was first written, we don't know how popular it may or may not have been. Um, so then uh, a couple more. Polycarp of Smyrna. He lived from the year 70 to 160. He wrote a letter to the Philippian church around the year 110, and he becomes one of the most famous early martyrs of, of the church. And his letter is really a goldmine for showing you what Christianity was like, what it was like around the year 110. He quotes the New Testament a lot, which shows you that the New Testament was already written and already considered authoritative because he's quoting it left and right in the year 110. Okay, so when people are, oh, the New Testament was written hundreds of years later. Oh, really? How's this guy quoting it in the year 110? You know, and how's he quoting it as authoritative? It had to get around and spread around and people had to know these things were written by the apostles. He battles against the heresy of docetism, which I'll be talking about that heresy in a, in a later lesson. Um, and unlike Ignatius, his friend, his contemporary, Polycarp sees no difference between bishops and elders. He's not coming up with the three-pronged uh, the, the three thing. Um, and so, um, so yeah, and, and let me see, do I have that here? Oh, yeah, this is, this is me being horrible, right? So Polycarp is very famous for his martyrdom. 
he was captured and then he was asked to recant. He's like, in 86 years, my king has never betrayed me. I'm not going to betray him. I'm not going to recant. And so then they, they burned him alive. And so you've heard so many pastors come up with the dumb joke that the only thing God could have said after he was burned was, well done. Well, me, I picked a picture where they're poking him with a, a blade to say, all right, his temperature's right. I had to do it. Sorry, Polycarp. I know he's going to be looking for me one day. <laughs> he's going to be like, really, you had to do that? Um, so letter to, to Dionysius um, is the last one we have written between 100 and 150. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know who he wrote it to, but it was written specifically to show how Christianity is superior to Judaism and paganism. Okay, so it makes an argument of why Christianity is really the best philosophy in, in the world. And so that's where we're at with the writings by about 150. You may have never heard of these things, but now you're, you're vaguely familiar with them. Um, and so pretty much what I want to do, I'm going to Ah, man. Let me see if I could give a fast run through. I wanted, based on these guys' writings, to do a quick snapshot of 150 just to show you how much changes in just 50 years. Okay? And so when it comes to church government, it's still biblical at this point for most people. But Ignatius let the cat out of the bag, right? And when he let the cat out of the bag and told us that the bishop is superior to the elders, that opens the door for the later hierarchy that we're going to see. The way it probably happened, okay, just to give you the origin story, the best, most plausible version of this is that the elders were all equal, but one was the first among equals because they're copying the synagogue, and that's how it was in the synagogue. And then eventually Ignatius and some other people said, let's just apply the title overseer to the one who's the first among equals. Once you do that for a while, you start to actually think he's more than just an equal, you know, that he's above them and they become his assistant. And once you separate bishop from elder, well, elders can't ordain bishops. Bishops could ordain elders because bishops are above them. So now only bishops could ordain bishops. So to be a bishop, you got to be ordained from outside the local church. And so this is what then creates this hierarchy, and it's what eventually creates apostolic succession. I'm a bishop ordained by another bishop who was ordained by Paul, right? That's where it comes from. Ignatius let that cat out of the bag. By 150, this was not the universal practice of church government. By 200, it was, okay? So... Throw that out there. I'm giving the, the, the fast version of it. Um, and so, yeah, that's pretty much what I just showed there. So, so moving on, uh, church worship. Church worship was, was pretty simple. Pliny, who was a government official, writes a letter to Trajan saying, I don't know what to do with these Christians. I captured them. I tortured them and found out that they get up before dawn. They sing songs to Christ. They take care of their poor. They're they don't seem like criminals. They then go to work, and then they come later in the day, and they take the Lord's Supper together, you know, and it's ordinary food because you're going to learn in a later lesson that the pagans were accusing Christians of eating babies and drinking their blood for the Lord's Supper. But after Pliny tortures them, he's like, no, it's just bread and wine, you know, and so he, he actually disproves the, the rumors against, against the Christians. Okay, so very simple when Pliny writes that in 112. But later when Justin Martyr in the late second century is writing, now all of a sudden the Sunday worship service is a little more complicated. There's two parts. One part, they read the Old Testament and New Testament until everybody gets tired. They read it for a long time. Once you get tired of them reading it, then somebody's going to preach a sermon. Okay, And once you get tired of the sermon, then there's going to be prayers 
and they pray for a long time. A typical worship service took over three hours. And then once they were done with the prayers, then it's the Lord's Supper. Um, now, Justin doesn't even mention singing. He leaves it out. But in other places, he does mention it. So we know they sang, but it was not an emphasis. So if somebody back then jumped in a time machine and came today, and you said, oh, you got to come see our worship. And then all you did was sing, because that's how we tend to use the word. They're going to be like, where was your worship? You know, so people use that word differently in, in different times. Um, the posture of worship, interestingly enough, was always standing. Only the preacher sat down. You had to stand for the whole sermon. Now, if your back started to hurt, you could sit and lean against the wall. So it's interesting. We do it opposite. The preacher stands, you all sit. Until the 1300s, that's how long this went on, you stood, they sat, okay? And if your back started to hurt and you had to sit, that was okay to lean against the wall. But if we start praying, everybody's got to stand. I don't care if your leg's broken, okay? So that's kind of how they were doing it by the, the, the late um, 200s. Okay, and so that's uh, one thing to mention there. By the time you get to the early third century, that's all standard. And so what we could say then is you had, by the time you get to the late 200s, you have two parts to the church service. The part where it's called the ministry of the word. And then that's where you read the scriptures for a long time, preach and, and, uh, and sing. And then you dismiss, anybody could come to that, unbelievers, believers. Then you dismiss them. You kick all the unbaptized people out. And then the second part's only for those who've been baptized. It's where you pray for a long time. Okay, everybody prays silently while the bishop prays out loud. And then when the praying's done, it's the Lord's Supper. The way the Lord's Supper was done is you all would bring your own loaf of bread and your own flask of wine. You would bring it. Everybody would put it on a collective table. The deacons would pray over it, okay, and or no, the the deacons would collect it, put it on the table. The bishop prays over it. Only his prayer counts, I guess, unless he delegates to somebody else. And then it gets distributed. And then the leftovers you get to take home. And as a family, you get to take the Lord's Supper with those for the rest of the week with those leftovers because a bishop prayed over it. And so different than how we do it now, you know, we're providing you the matzah and the, the Standard Brothers grape juice. But back then you had to bring your own loaf. You had to bring your own your own flask. And so we're almost done. Um, if you're going to go to the year 150, everything I just told you probably wasn't in place, but it was starting to get there. Right. So take what I said about the year 100. Take what I said about the year 200, about the worship service. And when you go to 150, it probably has some of those elements, but not all of them. One thing we know is in the early church, they had an agape meal, a full meal uh, with the Lord's Supper. By the time you get to 200, they don't have that anymore. 150 probably had some, some elements of that. Okay, And so pretty much I just wanted to give you, um, you know, this, this idea to show you what the church looked like in 100 and 200, give you an idea based on the apostolic fathers, what it probably looked like in 140, 150. But what I really want you to remember is 100 and the stuff we talked about, because few lessons from now, we're going to do this again with the year 325. And at that point, you're going to see a difference even more vast than this. Okay. And so that, that's my point with it. And so in conclusion, by the time you get to the year 100, uh, church was simple in terms of its names, government, ordinances, and worship. It gets more developed by 140, 150, but still fairly simple by 325, whole different ballgame. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray, and then uh, we'll get on out of here. 
Lord God, we just thank you so much for being with us. And I thank you for these troopers being able to withstand a little longer of a lesson than normal. And uh, we just pray, Lord, that in everything that this was pleasing to you and that uh, we all know a little bit more about how your church uh, developed. And so, Lord, be with us uh, and keep everybody safe until we come back together in two weeks. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all this. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. Sorry for going a